You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guests are Eugene Choi and Alan Lee, co-founders of CollabAsia. Eugene and Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, excited to be here. James, great to see you again. Yeah, glad we get to do this. We've been friends for a few years now and have had a chance to hang out all over the world from LA to Seoul to Singapore. Uh, but here we are in Paladin HQ, downtown Los Angeles, getting a chance to catch up post VidCon. So to just kind of dig in, I thought we'd start by getting an understanding of how both of you met and how you got your start in the media and entertainment space. Well, first, let me get this out of the way, James. So basically, if, 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 your, list, if your listeners don't know, James is a CEO and founder of his own company, and he's hustling, and I see him all around the world, and <laughs> you're doing this podcast. So kudos, I tip my cat to you. I don't know how you do it, but uh, you're, you, you impress me with your energy level. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think last time I saw you was in Singapore or Seoul. Was it Seoul? Probably, because that was my first time in Seoul. I went la- this February. I remember it was really fest. cold. It was very cold. It was, yeah. yeah. I landed in Seoul in the middle of the night, and yep. uh, it was snowing. Yeah. And I was trying to find my way to my hotel, mm-hmm. which was an adventure in and of itself. But these incredibly kind Korean people helped me find my way. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a great time. Got to go to my first FanFest event ever, uh, which is really cool because you get kind of a sense of the pulse of the influencer space and the community in that region. It's my first time in, in Korea and uh, just loved the energy. Got to tour a little bit of the Olympic Village and then you were like the perfect tour guide. You showed me uh, all the kind of hot spots for both locals and expats. And we went out for Korean barbecue and, uh, of course, yeah. or, or as they call it there, just barbecue. Just barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> and it was delicious. A lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, I've made it to Japan, but I feel like when I was there, we missed each other. Like I was in Tokyo and you were traveling Alan. We were like ships in the night. Yeah. As, as, uh, as often happens, but yeah, we haven't met in Tokyo yet, but you know, never say never. That's right. Next time you're, you're in town, let us know. Yeah. So before we get to how you guys landed in South Korea and Japan, uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, why you started in media and entertainment. I mean, Eugene, kind of going back in your background, you started really in like the agency world, right? And then went yeah. back to school and got your MBA. Tell us a little bit about your early experience. Actually, um, even in college, I was a mass communications major. So I always had an interest in media and entertainment, actually more interested in the entertainment side. You know, I was really wanted to get into film and and that sort of thing but always just saw it as being too risky so i think advertising was like a good compromise it's kind of this intersection between business but also you know you get close to content and what whatnot but the first job i had was at Kara usa which is a division of aegis which has now been acquired by dentsu but uh you know Kara usa i mean just goes to show how much i knew because they are a media planning and buying agency. So didn't do anything with content, didn't do anything creative. When I was there, I was there for about two and a half years and fortunately was on the uh, Hyundai and Kia accounts, which you know automotive accounts have the largest advertising budget. So got exposed to a lot of different things. The big project that I w- helped support every year was the print media plan, which just goes to show how old I am. Um, <laughs> It was like, are we going to run an ad in Newsweek or Time Magazine, Maxim or FHM? And so it was a different world back then. And I remember, you know, towards the end as I was, I was transitioning out is actually when they launched their online advertising department. But 
Um, it was a great experience because kind of the core, you know, principles and the basics of advertising still remain the same to this day. Instead of, you know, print, obviously now uh, with digital, you just have a lot more data and information. So I did that for about two and a half years. And then I wanted to do something that was more in the entertainment industry. So ended up moving to Los Angeles and joined a small boutique entertainment marketing agency. Uh, it was actually founded by two, you know, two twin brothers actually who started their careers at the Fox TV network in marketing promotions, uh, Mark and Eric Stroman. And then later, right before they be, you know, launched their own shop, they were actually uh, the heads of the Endeavor marketing department at the Endeavor talent agency before Endeavor essentially took over William Morris. So it was kind of like entourage meets swimming with sharks because these guys were old school media executives. I essentially started as their uh, assistant. It was a great experience. I mean, we basically, our biggest clients were the city of Las Vegas. Uh, sponsorships for Major League Soccer, product placement deals for, for Showtime TV shows, and also, you know, product placement into, or as they called it back then, branded integration into uh, Activision video games. It was, you know, we did some work with the Tony Hawk video game. And for the city of Las Vegas, we worked in conjunction with their media agency initiative, who at the time was spending a lot of money uh, with the what happens here stays here campaign and so our agency what we did was try to leverage those media buys and convince the tv networks to actually film more things in vegas but not highlight the you know gambling and the strip clubs but highlight their fine dining golfing spas restaurants and shopping so it obviously that was a really great great experience um after that then went to get my mba what made you decide to go back to school so, you know, at that point, I think I, well, I just wanted to be more well-rounded as a, as a professional. Up until that point, all my experiences were kind of in the marketing and obviously advertising realm. And so, you know, I just felt like something was missing. I wanted to get a better understanding of finance and accounting and that sort of thing, which in grad school, like I barely passed finance and I barely, you know, barely got through accounting. But I learned enough to kind of, you know, see how that fits into the big picture. You know, met a lot of great people above all else. There we go. Alan, what were you doing during this time? You kind of started your career more in traditional finance, M&A, and then later on also decided to go back and get an, an MBA. Tell us about, you know, what you were doing early on in your career. So, yeah, I started investment banking right out of college. I was at a firm called DLJ and I was in the M&A group which basically means, you know, sleeping under my desk, working 100-hour work weeks, uh, the whole nine yards. But it's really good training for really still kind of like the, you know, seminal moment uh, in my career since that time. And in investment banking, you either kind of follow along a product track, which is, you know, M&A or debt capital markets or something like that, or you pick an industry group to kind of focus on. And I'd always liked entertainment just as a consumer and, you know, my goal was always to run my own company one day. So, you know, after being the M&A group, I had a chance to go to the industry. I went to this dot-com, which is no longer around. It's called uh, Hollywood Stock Exchange. And from there, I moved over to Lionsgate Entertainment, where my main role there was basically kind of like an in-house junior investment banker where you're doing corporate finance and valuing library. And that's where I really learned how to value content, whether it's in the form of film or TV or new media. And then uh, from there, I went to business school, went to Columbia Business School, and 
toyed around with going back to banking, but this was around 2005. The hedge fund industry was extremely active. So uh, I went to a hedge fund called uh, DB's Wern, and my role there, again, was basically making loans to companies collateralized by their content library. So again, content library uh, became a primary focus of my career. And, uh, and then I hooked up with Eugene much later than that, and here we are. So you mentioned you'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur. You have this fascination from a young age as a consumer of entertainment. What drew you to that path? Why was that the goal? Yeah, it all starts with, you know, I think for, I probably speak for everyone in this room. It all starts with like a personal interest that probably was formed when you're young, like a kid, right? You just love movies. I loved movies. I just loved, it's still, if I have two hours to spend, it's still, I would rather do it watching a movie than anything else, right? It takes you into this whole new world. It's, it's, it's a combination of art, science, technology is a big part of it. So yeah, that's where it started. And then as a finance person, it's good to focus on an industry. Uh, you don't have to, but it's good to. So that's why I picked entertainment. How did you two ultimately meet? Well, we had a lot of mutual friends. And ultimately, the guy who connected us with, I think, was Joseph Kim. Joe Kim, yeah. Joe Kim, who's actually in the gaming space. Uh, he's actually a pretty interesting guy. We should connect you with him as well. Uh, he, at one point, I think was heading up Sega America, yeah. but in the prior to that, I think he was a he had his own venture start- capitalist. He, well, he started his own, uh, gaming development company. He was oh, yeah, financed right. by Savon Capital and another one of our mutual friends actually worked for him there. But yeah, we, we knew each other through the Berkeley alumni network essentially. Well, and so here's how I know Joseph Kim, which is kind of a funny story. So he married this woman named Sienna, who actually I went to third grade with. So Sienna's parents and and my father were like old friends. And so when we first moved to California in third grade from Wisconsin in a U-Haul van is all we had, uh, we had nowhere to stay. And so we stayed at, in. I remember sleeping in her like living room. And so we lost touch completely. And then freshman year at Berkeley in 1997, randomly one of my friends maybe i shouldn't be telling this story but one of my friends met sienna on aol and then that's how sienna and i reconnected like and back that, in the instant messenger days yeah yeah and then uh and then eventually uh sienna one day hit me up and said you got to meet my husband joe oh this was around the time when i was uh, gonna get my mba and so joseph had gotten his mba in ucl i think ucla then joe like a month or two later said oh you gotta talk to this guy alan and so we connected then, and we started, Alan and I and An- Andrea, Andrea Chung, yeah. the three of us started organizing just kind of like happy hours at Cafe Blue in Koreatown. It was just, we called it Coho. It was an intersection of, uh, you know, Korean Americans and Hollywood, right? So we're trying to gather, between the two of us, we had a lot of friends that were in the entertainment or media business, and it wasn't just for Koreans. We were inviting everybody uh, who we knew, and we did that for maybe about three months. It's a fun before. party, yeah. You had like people from like traditional Hollywood come by, and then you had like people from that were like totally Asia focused. You had like Chinese people from like Chinese film industry drop by. It was really fun. Yeah, just a lot of random people, and that was kind of the first time Alan and I started hanging out quite a bit, and then obviously just kept in touch. And then when I joined Collab, uh, after a while, there was a need for a finance guy, sure. right? Uh, and how did you make your way to Collab? How did you meet the, the McFadden guys in the Collab crew? So that's also, you know, interesting story. So I, after business school, I went to work for CJ America, 
and it was, you know, not exactly what I wanted to do. I was in the strategy and planning team, but in hindsight, it was a great experience because I had never worked for a Korean Korean company before. And CJ is the largest Korean entertainment company in the world. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really get involved in too many entertainment-related projects. I mean, CGV launched, the movie theater launched here during my tenure over there. I wasn't directly involved. I was actually more involved in setting up their online store on Amazon for their food products. But I was doing that. But around that time, I randomly started producing a reality show. I don't know if I'd ever told you the story, but... I don't think so. Okay, so um, at the time, I remember Jersey Shore was the hottest show on TV. And uh, a friend of mine, Eddie Kim, who I went to college with, we both just were sitting around and we're like, dude, Jersey Shore, it's such an amazing phenomenon. And we said, I think this could work in Koreatown with Asian Americans, right? Because you have young... You know, I I remember reading this uh, article... There's all this controversy. And then MTV was like, you know, it was like, oh, you make Italian-Americans in Jersey look horrible, right? But I remember the MTV executive was like, no, at MTV, we love exploring youth culture and, you know, their, you know, rites of passage, right? And so I remember thinking, well, you know, definitely Koreatown has its own unique, distinct culture and Asian-Americans, you know, there's a lot of, you know, they go to karaoke and, you know, different types of you know, nightclubs. And obviously there's a lot of, you know, the rites of passage for Asian Americans are are quite different. So anyway, long story short, me and Eddie started, had this idea, and then we randomly met Tyrese Gibson's producing partner. He had just come off of Fast and the Furious 5 and Transformers 3, and his producing partner wanted to get involved. And we ended up developing essentially what ended up becoming a pilot, uh, not so much a pilot, but a pitch tape for a reality show called K-Town. And so at that time, we actually ended up selling a pilot to, we got offers from E and Oxygen. We sold the pilot to E, but ultimately it didn't get picked up for a full season. And then around that time is actually when YouTube started its original channel initiative, where they're funding channels and content. And I got to meet uh, George Strompolos and Song Kang full screen so later they told me it's because everyone got a youtube production budget deal except for full screen so what they tried to do is find people like us who had like a you know a project with legs and try to connect them right or use it to kind of get the funding themselves it's funny because uh you know we realized i realized george and i went to college together we were the same major he was like a year younger he was like this skateboarder guy always had a skateboard and then Song was one of the you know first employees over at Fullscreen, and so Song and I had just kept we just kept in touch, and you know we we continued to meet up, and I would always tell Song about how K-pop was blowing up right now, and it was because of YouTube, and then Song and I half jokingly was always talking about hey we should we should create K-pop Vivo K-pop Vivo right. This is early. I mean, you're talking, what, 2006, 2007? Uh, no, this was actually 2011, 2012. Oh, okay. So a little later. But still, I mean, before K-pop was trending on you know, U.S. Top 40, yeah. before you know, a lot of these uh, original productions had happened on YouTube. This was before Psy Gangnam Style. And when that blew up, I, you know, immediately Song and I were texting and, ah, this maybe K-pop Vivo could work, right? And then eventually um, I ended up, actually producing three different web series that were all funded by YouTube. And we worked with Electus on that. 
Uh, I did one other project. And then, you know, you, these digital projects, you don't make any money, right? If you get on TV as a producer fee, you get maybe 10%, then maybe you can eke out a living. But uh, on digital, these budgets are one-tenth of what it is. The first season of K-Town, which was, I forget how many minutes of content, budget was about 260K. And it, but it, it took us, you know, eight months to film and, and deliver, right? And, um, you know, with that production fee split amongst other producers, it, you can't really make a living off of that. So eventually, Song then had, you know, had left full screen and, and started collab with the McFadden's. And he hired like a part-time, you know, intern for, that was Korean and a part-time intern that was Japanese and started kind of the YouTube MCN business in Asia. But, you know, they were part-time and, and, you know, they were, they were running into some challenges. So that's when he asked me, hey, why don't you join? I think there's an opportunity here. Not only help with the Asia stuff, but, you know, at the time, Collab had less than 10 employees. And they were growing fast, so they needed a lot of people. So that's how I ended up at Collab in 2014. So you come aboard, you're helping with Asia strategy, but more broadly with business development. And uh, at some point, business is growing. They need help with finance and maybe some of this corporate development strategy expertise. Yeah. And you're like, I know the perfect guy. That's where Alan came into the picture. Exactly. Yeah, so around 2016, uh, what was happening um, in the ecosystem was the MCN model had already been, you know, run its course in the U.S. by the time 2016 rolled around. You know, all the innovation and experimentation happens in the U.S., but in Asia, it was just kind of getting started. And so Eugene was able to kind of foresee that the next really hot market for the YouTube ecosystem would be Asia. And that's when he kind of thought, hey, there's an opportunity for us to spin off the Asian division as a separate company from Club U.S., and uh, uh, raise some money for it and then actually run it as a separate company. And so that's when I got involved. And why was that the choice? You know, Collab you know, already had a presence in a number of these territories, had been working at a distance uh, for many years and representing creators in you know, markets like South Korea, Japan. Why say, let's focus on this as a separate legal entity, let's raise money for it. You know, why, why was that the strategy? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, part of it was, you know, the, the McFadden brothers and Song Kang were smart enough to kind of realize that if they really wanted to succeed in another market that they really needed to incentivize, you know, whoever was going to go out there and run it. And so in order to do that really properly, they would have to, you know, spin it off as a separate entity. There was also some, you know, I'm sure they all, we can't speak for them, but I'm sure there were some issues about, hey, maybe the Asia business is a different risk return profile. And so it makes sense for us to separate these two entities. So you, you make this decision, we're going to go out, we're going to raise money, we're going to launch this new business. What was the hardest part really as being kind of these first time entrepreneurs? Alan, you had actually had some entrepreneurial experience before that. What inspired both of you to say, we're in, this is what we want to do. And what was the hardest part about getting up and running? Yeah, actually, both Alan and I, we, we talk about this before each of us joined Collab, we had both attempted to launch our own startup. And failed. And failed. <laughs> and actually failure. Multiple we, times. Yeah, we actually <laughs> failure was, was the best. I mean, so prior to that, when I was actively producing uh, these web series, initially with YouTube funding and with some of this other stuff, I actually tried to launch my own YouTube MCN without even knowing what that was, right? I had you know, at that point, just experience producing content for the platform. I, I had worked with YouTube, but more on this 
particular original channel project, I didn't know what a CMS was. I didn't know what one looked like, uh, you know. So I tried to do that for about a year and failed. And what was the name of that project? Well, the company was actually, it was called Mayrock Media. I raised $20,000 <laughs> from Strong Ventures. This was in 2013 and, um, you know, ended up only, the only thing I ended up doing for a year was producing a documentary web series that we, you know, raised money on Kickstarter. Because for the most part, it was just me the whole time. And like maybe one or two college interns I could like, trick into like working for me for free right so I did that for about a year but yeah I mean the goal was again I saw this opportunity in Asia I knew people were just getting into YouTube and no one knew you could make money on YouTube in 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 Korea at the time it, Korea was the market I was most familiar with and so I was like we have to do an Asian MCN so I tried to do it by myself again couldn't get a CMS didn't even know anything about the YouTube ecosystem and that's when, you know, it was perfect that I end up joining Collab afterwards. Yeah, I can't talk enough about how big a role failure played in us getting together because yeah. the way we've been able to hire, I think, the best executives in, in Asia, a lot of them also were entrepreneurs as well. And they, I'm not saying they all failed, but they went through, I mean, you know how hard it is to go from zero to one. I mean, it's, it is the hardest thing you'll ever do. So we wanted when we gravitated towards people like that because we understand this is a person that um, you know can empathize with everyone from the lowest level intern up to the senior executives and that's what makes a great leader and so yeah Eugene and I we actually I was I gravitated towards him in early days because we were both just going through that grinding period where we're trying to get our own startups off the ground I had a film data startup which really hard to do I, I tip my cap to you again. I mean, the SaaS model is not easy to get off the ground. So I was going through that and, you know, you know, misery loves company. So I would just call him up and we just kind of commiserate together. And that's how we kind of bonded. And so when I saw, and when finally, you know, Eugene, you know, uh, built up this, this really great division and I saw the opportunity, I knew he would be, you know, the perfect partner to, to, to work with. Yeah. And then, so in 2017, we finally raised like a series A round of funding. And that wasn't easy because, you know, my background, I didn't, I didn't even know what VC stood for, you know, <laughs> a couple of years ago. Right. So yeah, that, that was a, that was a learning experience. A learning experience yeah. It wasn't easy, especially also because we <laughs> eventually ended up raising money from Altos Ventures, which is from, you know, Sand Hill Road and Silicon Valley, but we raised money from the Korea based fund. And they're really active in Korea, actually. They've invested in some of the biggest companies. We, we had, at the time of spinoff, about 400 channels, maybe, that we managed. About 300-some were, were in Korea. And just because I spoke a little bit of Korean, we ended up actually fundraising mostly from Korea, uh, which was tough because we were both living in Los Angeles at the time. So in 2016, I think, late 2016, like Alan and I... We're flying to Korea like once a month, spending two weeks at a time. And, and it was tough. I mean, like we sometimes we walk into a room and no one speaks English. And my Korean is better now. But back then, like there's basic vocab words, business terminology that I just didn't know. And so uh, it was, again, 
talk about failure. Like, you know, we failed many times even in that process, but uh, learned a lot, actually made a lot of great connections as a result of that uh, because some of these people went on to different areas or, you know, we just kept in touch. And somehow, some way, yeah, we, we were able to raise $3 million Series A. That was enough capital for us to incorporate set up Asia, a separate company, you know, and then we had to, you know, incorporate in Korea and incorporate in Japan, you know, put some of our employees on payroll and give them like health insurance and stuff like that. So yeah. it's funny because most of this is fairly recent history. And I remember it at the time because yeah. I think we, yeah. Eugene, you and I had gotten introduced through song maybe a few years back and we had known each other, kept in touch. And then you had introduced me to Alan as you two were thinking about this and it went from you know, it's an idea, hey, we'd like to do this to, oh, you know, we're raising money working on the fundraise to, oh, the, the round's closed and I'm moving to Korea in two weeks. Like, I remember it <laughs> happening. Yeah. Uh, it, it probably felt like years for you guys, but, you know, as, a, as yeah. an outside observer, it was like, wow, this is exciting. It's all coming together. And you pack your bags, move to Korea. Uh, Alan, you landed in Tokyo. I went to Tokyo, yeah. Um, and, and you guys were off to the races, right? So yep. you've since built out your team, you've expanded into a number of new markets. You're in Hong Kong, you're doing stuff in greater China. You hired another good friend of ours, Jerry, uh, right. who is Indonesian by, by background, grew up mostly in Australia, but also had spent a lot of time in LA, entrepreneurial guy, talent management background. But he comes in to lead Indonesia at first, and now it sounds like you know more of the pan-Asian strategy. But how do you identify these markets? How do you identify these leaders to add to your team and continue to scale? So uh, initially, Alan and I, we, we originally thought, hey, each market in Asia, you know, in, in America, people tend to clump Asia together as if it's one country. But, you know, obviously, there's a lot of different languages, a lot of different cultures. And, and we knew that we, we were going to need good people, good executives, right? And originally, we thought each country office was going to be kind of very self-contained. But since then, we, we actually uh, were kind of one big company, right? I mean, it's, it, you can't separate things out. I mean, YouTube is not, YouTube is a global platform. So it's tough for us to kind of, you know, separate our business in that way. So originally, yeah, we, we had a lot of ideas, some which, you know, were clearly wrong. But um, it was Korea and Japan at the time. And, and, you know, I had just gotten married, actually. So in July, we closed Series A. August, I got married. I actually had to delay my wedding date. So kudos to my wife for being very patient. And then September is when we made the big move. So it was a pretty wild time. And again, like my, my wife was very understanding. Um, and then Alan, on the other hand, um, because we didn't have any senior people in Japan, but at the time we still had a decent sized business there, he moved to Tokyo, right? But he doesn't, he's not Japanese. He doesn't speak Japanese. The good, the good thing is Japan is very, our Japan business is very B2B focused. So uh, of course we have big individual creators as, as well, but we knew from the, from the beginning that Japan had just a ton of content, right? Original content in the form of anime. It's actually the second, lar the second largest music market in the world. People don't know that. So tons of content there. And we knew that a lot of the relationships that we needed to make in Japan would be B2B, so businesses. And I'm like, well, I'm from the banking world. And yeah, maybe I don't speak Japanese, which I don't, but I could at least add some value there. So that's why we, we that's why I went to Tokyo. Um, and just to follow up on what Eugene said, you know, we can't really point to one thing that has allowed us to succeed this far, but uh, it's a multitude of things. The first one is the business model that we imported and then kind of iterated upon from the Club USA guys. It works, right? It works in pretty much every market we go into. 
Number two, I would say it's co uh, corporate culture. So, and again, we, we have the USA guys to, th uh, to thank because we were able to kind of lean on the culture that they had built up. And a lot of the things that maybe people in our industry, especially in America, take for granted, so diversity, inclusiveness, kind of um, equality, neutrality in terms of gender, all that kind of stuff, that's a big deal at Cloud USA. And we had imported that to Asia, and that's how we've attracted the best and the brightest in each of our markets. So corporate culture, business model, and then I guess a little bit of luck, I guess, is what how we've been able to get to where we are. Yeah, so it was in, initially it was just Korea and Japan, and then in VidCon 2017, you know, when we, you know, it was, it was become clear that this was actually going to happen, uh, we went to VidCon, and then Alan told me, he's like, I'm going to look for every Asian person here. <laughs> and he, he literally went up to literally would just go up to every single Asian person that would happen to be at VidCon. And that's how he met Jerry. And there weren't a lot back then, by the way, this VidCon this year was pretty diverse, but even just two years ago, it was actually not as diverse. Yeah. Surprisingly yeah. enough. And, and Jerry at the time, you know, his background is in music. He was a manager, talent manager. And I always say like, I think people from the music industry, it translates really well because they understand distribution. They understand content. They could review contracts and they also have the patience to deal with, crazy weird creative talent right so Jerry was perfect and then you know he was going around looking to transition he saw music is you know he had a he had a one-year-old kid and he can't go to shows in Hollywood twice a week go you know follow his DJs around so he was he saw a lot of opportunity in digital he saw a lot of opportunity in Southeast Asia because that's where he's from and so he was going around uh, he tells a story. He was going around, you know, just networking and talking to companies and asking them, hey, what's your Asia strategy? What's your Southeast Asia strategy? And, and most of these companies at the time, I mean, it's still kind of like that. They were just like, well, we have one office in London. You know what I mean? <laughs> Something like that. Uh, and then, of course, then he met Alan. And then it just kind of, it was it was a match made in heaven, right? Like we we found each other, right? And he's been, he basically opened up Indonesia for us and he basically opened up Southeast Asia for us like we now have offices in not only Jakarta and in Indonesia but also now Manila and Philippines and soon to be Singapore we have one person there and it's all really a large part of it is because of Jerry because he understands that market really well that's great and I want to kind of come back to something you mentioned earlier which is a lot of companies don't know how to get started in Asia right and they think about APAC as a block one unit and they don't understand the nuances culturally, linguistically, uh, historically between a lot of these different nations. You essentially come in and you start in the more established territories of Korea and Japan, North Asia, right? Higher CPMs, mm -hmm. uh, kind of developed markets for Asia. But then you expand to Indonesia with massive population but lacking infrastructure, right? So good mobile phone penetration, yep. but very, very little smartphone penetration, right? Getting better though. Certainly getting better. Yeah. Infrastructure is rapidly developing. Social media usage sure. is, is exploding. And thus you can see these indicators, these kind of lagging signals of, mm -hmm. okay, there's going to be explosive growth in this emerging market. At That's the same right. time, of course, Facebook had become you know, pretty popular there. YouTube is eyeing what Facebook is doing and wants to get into markets like uh, Philippines and Indo. So you decide, all right, well, let's make a play for Southeast Asia. How do you then think about you know the business because it's fundamentally different right so you've got higher cpm territories higher fill rate established ad models in a korea and a japan then you go into indonesia you've got a lot of reach but lower monetization potential how do you reconcile that 
Well, <laughs> it's a tough question. One thing I would say actually is, um, you know, tracing back to when I joined Collab, when, when the McFadden's and Song launched Collab in 2012, um, at that time, it was a crowded market, right? I mean, everyone had, all these other companies had raised 30 some million Series B rounds. And then you have, you know, the McFadden brothers and Song in a small room in downtown LA, almost, you know, the size of this one. They were just sitting around figuring out what the F are we going to do? How are we going to compete against these guys? So I think there's two things that they did that were ultimately, you know, obviously smart and worked out. Number one, they looked to overseas markets. And that's when Song hired actually one of the cast members of the K-Town reality show to, you know, launch their Korea business. And also they found like a UCLA MBA to intern for them part time and launch their Japan business. So they looked to Asia, number one, as new markets. Uh, number two, the other thing they did was they looked at other platforms besides YouTube. And at the time, around 2013 is when Vine really started taking off. And so Collab always had, you know, at the time, what they did was they found people who are making great content. They were creative, making great content, but they weren't making any money doing it because Vine didn't have a, a revenue share model. And so the idea initially was, hey, let's just set up YouTube channels for them. And that's literally what they did. They would upload six second videos onto some newly created channel. But, you know, that obviously evolved over time. So they helped these creators create YouTube channels. But then they also started kind of copyright claiming other people who were ripping off those Vine videos and including them in like Vine compilations. And then, you know, once they had a YouTube channel with a huge following and, and a Vine channel with a huge following, then... Uh, you know, then the brand starts, start calling. So now all of a sudden these Vine creators that had no money were making no money. Now they were making money off their YouTube channel, off of copyright claiming and from brands. And so when we went into Indonesia, I mean, basically with, with, when Jerry joined us, we had this orientation at our WeWork office and we basically traced back that history and, and kind of shared that. And, you know, Jerry saw that in Indonesia, the number one platform was Instagram. And I, I read an article somewhere that like Instagram stories is still like the most widely used in Indonesia or something like that. So even to this day, you know, we work with roughly about 400 channels in Indonesia, about half of those channels, Jerry and, and the team, they found those creators on Instagram. So it's in essence did the same thing that collab did with Vine in America. They did that with, uh, you know, Instagram in Indonesia because when we entered Indonesia, there was already two big, um, actually there was three technically, but uh, three other MCNs. And so in, in initially it was Jerry and one video editor. So that's kind of how we found our way to establish ourselves in Indonesia and, and you know, grow from there. I was going to follow on. Our business is fundamentally the same in each of the markets, including the more developed markets of Japan and Korea versus uh, Indonesia. The way we've been able to grow in each market is for now, up until now. So we kind of, when you look at our company, we have different life stages. The first stage is really just growth. It's like we need to uh, become one of the dominant players in Indonesia, which I think we are now. And after that, now comes you know the hard part. I mean, that was hard enough. That what we're doing now is we are starting to see a lot of synergies between each of our offices. So we hired really strong staff. Uh, we gave them kind of marching orders and they executed to a T. Now it's about hiring senior people that are a little more creative and are, are going to have a little more leeway. 
and global executives. So the ideal person would be an Indonesian, but someone who has had some schooling experience in America or abroad, has dealt with global companies like obviously YouTube and Google and Amazon and stuff like that. Uh, Facebook people, Hulu people, these kind of global brands, these are the people that we're looking for in all our markets, including Korea, Japan, and Indonesia. And what we're really offering is a very unique experience where they're going to be able to, they're going to see the fast growth of a startup, of a domestic startup, combined with the global reach and the sophistication of a company like Google. So that's our next stage, I would say. So focus initially on growth, then look at now that we're here, how do we fully monetize and leverage the market potential? And each market's different, right? You, you honed in on how Instagram is so dominant in Indonesia. Twitter is massively popular in Japan, right? Mm, Which is right. unique. You've got Facebook really popular in Thailand. So understanding kind of the nuances of each market and what platforms people respond to, what types of content people respond to is really important. Yeah, definitely. I mean, each of our executives in each of the markets have their eyes on whatever app is of the moment in that country. And remember, for us, we're, we're app agnostic, right? Whether you're coming from Twitter or Twitch or TikTok or Yin, wherever you're coming from, hey, we're going to help you monetize on multiple platforms. Of course, YouTube being the, the primary one, but also connect you with brand sponsorships and stuff like that. So yeah, we're, we have our eye on all of those things and we're starting to fill our ranks with senior people that have experience with those kind of um, platforms because we're experts in YouTube, we're experts in brand sponsorships. We have a cross uh, office uh, global kind of pan-Asian platform. Now it's time for us to really fill our senior ranks with those who have experience in, in those kind of apps. How has the competitive landscape in Asia changed over time, right? In the early days, you had the USMCNs who start running up against the borders of talent that they can sign. So many of them go overseas, particularly first to South America, right? It's easy to get creators in Mexico, Brazil, time mm. zones are similar. Then they go to Western Europe, right? Establish ad markets, English speaking countries, able to expand. Not that many of them actually went to Asia, mm -hmm. you know, Collab did, maybe a few others did where they were opportunistically signing talent. And I hear these stories from back in the day of people going to Google Translate, basically copy pasting their outreach script, trying to sign up as many creators as possible, and then scattering that far and wide. But Collab through Song's efforts and Eugene, your early efforts, was very purposeful about entering yeah. Korea and Japan. And then you have this evolution of, well, it's not just the U.S. players from a distance. Now you've got some local players and in individual markets. Then you've seen some roll-ups that have happened, even a few this year, right? In Indonesia, you had four major digital media properties come together and form All-Stars Indonesia, right? So you've got kind of a roll-up that's happened there. Any mind group from Japan has been particularly active, just acquired Moindi and is reaching out into Thailand. And then you've got some other Pan-Asian players like the Web TV Asias of the world and the Gush Clouds, which are more of an agency, less of a, a network model. But certainly these others that are thinking, okay, well, we want to be dominant in a number of these markets, similar to your strategy. What does that mean for the future of your business? Yeah, it's definitely getting more competitive. You know, actually, when I joined Collab in 2014, part of it was because Song, as I said, had hired a friend of mine to start recruiting channels in Korea, specifically, in late 2013. And at that time, I mean, when he would reach out to content creators, YouTubers in Korea, it was like, hey, I'm, I'm messaging you from LA, you make great content, work with us, you're going to make more money, right? And then oftentimes would not get a response for a while. And later he found out is because a lot of people in, in Korea at the time didn't even know you can make money 
on YouTube, right? So in essence, they thought it was like one of those like Nigerian, like <laughs> yeah, like email phishing, whatever, right? Like, oh, I'm from LA, you're gonna make tons of money and blah, 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 right? So that happened in 2013. And then actually CJ, one of the largest media conglomerates in Korea and also almost in Asia, they started their MCN business in late 2013, Daya TV. They, they claim to be the first MCN in Korea, but I think maybe Collab started a little bit before them. But you know they became a dominant player in Korea in 2014. Actually, and then in 2015, the head of that department, uh, Mr. Song, he left. He raised $17 million in venture capital funding. And in 2015, they set up Treasure Hunter. And then around that time, uh, this was 2015. And then shortly thereafter, Sandbox started, uh, I think in 2016 mm-hmm. is when they got like a seed round. Pilsung is an ex-Googler, right? Yeah, yeah. he was ex-ad sales for Google Korea. And they just raised a big, I don't know if it's news is public, but they just raised a massive round, I think almost $20 million this past January. So yeah, Korea is definitely, definitely com- very competitive. Yeah, talking about Japan, I mean, you have Oom which is probably still the only pure play MCN that is public currently. There's yeah one, but of course they've been really challenged. But um, when you look at the flurry of activity in terms of financing and as you said, roll, you know, M&A roll-ups and stuff like that, there's no bigger validation of the industry we're in. And it's, it's hard to see how it's similar to what happened to the MCNs in, the, in America. I think America was just a little too early. When you think about the YouTube MCNs that came up whenever 2009 or whatever, I mean, at that time, social media was barely just out of its infancy, right? Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that. So it's totally different in Asia. It's, it's really sky's the limit. We think there's, there are brands being created on uh, via MCNs all the time now. Whereas in America, if you had a kid's property like Ryan's toys or something, the odds of you creating the next Sesame street based on Ryan's toys, it's possible they're, they're making a run for it, but you're going up against Sesame street, right? But, in places like Indonesia and, and Philippines and even places like Korea and Japan, there aren't operable type brands that you need to compete with. So there's, it's wide open, and I think we, we've barely kind of scratched the surface, I think. Well, I love that insight into IP development, particularly in these territories, because there's so much opportunity. But you also mentioned a couple of things that I have to dig into. Number one is Oom, right? So Japan is this fascinating case study, because unlike many other markets where there are early on emerged a healthy degree of competition, Oom has been the dominant force as a creator network in Japan for, I don't know, maybe close to a decade now. Maybe it's weakening, but at at a certain point had well over 90% market share, right? So they're the sole, if not dominant player. YouTube, of course, doesn't doesn't love that. They're they're, I think they have a good relationship with Oom, but once they're in the same building, so yeah, once (laughs) once to see, you know, more competition happening. And so, so what does that mean for the Japanese market? Is that changing over time? You've got some new entrants there. Mm. Obviously, you guys are present there. You have a few others coming into Japan. How is it going head-to-head against a player that's had such a dominant market position? Not as hard as you would think because when you have someone as dominant as Oom, um, they essentially become the evil empire, right? And you have a very strong anti-Oom um element. And not just individuals, creators and stuff like that, but brand agencies, advertising agencies, the brands themselves they are like, well, Oom is too powerful and they're dictating terms that are, you know, we can't agree with. Uh, Let's talk. Right. So we're going after that. I also think that the pie itself is getting bigger. So Oom's share will decrease. We're actually seeing, well, any mind has raised a lot of money. 
we at Collab, I mean, our strategy isn't to raise a, a buttload of money and just like throw money at a problem. We're smarter than that. And we're, our business model is really based on very tight kind of ROIs that we have. And so I think clients kind of pick up on that. So that's how we've been able to kind of compete around Oom, try not to compete head on. There are certain verticals that they haven't really captured. So it's really kind of maneuvering around that. There's also influencer marketing companies that have popped up seemingly overnight because of Oom's dominance and there's kind of this hole there. So, you know, one possible strategy is to continue to partner with them, et cetera. Talking about Oom's stock price really quickly. So, you know, coming from finance, I've looked at that hard and I, I continue to look at that. And, you know, maybe a year from now we can discuss it. There's a whole new conversation. But from what I can see, the, the reason why, and it's great that they're valued highly because we absolutely agree with the Japanese market. Online video is the future, right? One of the reasons I think they got such a healthy valuation, even though it's gone down recently, is because the dearth of options for the Japanese investor to invest in, right? So they're still the only quote unquote pure play online video advertising platform. And so you have tons of capital in Japan. Most of them are senior citizens. So I'm sure they realize all their grandchildren's or kids are on YouTube. They don't know quite how that way is headed, but hey, Oom is on the forefront. So, and there's no other option to me. So I'm just gonna invest in them. But when you look at online video advertising that brands in Japan spend on versus traditional advertising, and then you compare that to the US, there's still a huge gap. And I believe that's what investors are looking at. And we, we tend to agree with them. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Oom stock price because that's a perfect segue in my next question, which is you know, we've only seen a small number of MCNs go public right throughout their history. So the first one you had was Reitzer, now Brave Bison, go public on the London mm -hmm. Stock Exchange. Nice. And that has been a bad slide down for many years. Uh, I think they've largely turned the ship around. They found a business model that works, getting out of more of the creator business, focusing much more on uh, brand services. They found a model that works. Uh, but second, you have Oom, right? And mm -hmm. I'm probably kicking myself that I didn't invest in Oom stock mm -hmm. because it's done very well. But you know, I looked at the, the Brave Bison model and just was a little bit worried that public markets didn't understand mm -hmm. uh, the performance of these new entities. And of course, still a lot of things that are changing, right? Things are in flux. The business model is evolving. Thing. And then you mentioned earlier another name, Yeah One, the third company to go yeah. public, which uh, happened in Vietnam. And they've been in the press recently for their issues with YouTube and uh, losing their, essentially their MCN license, having their, their YouTube CMS revoked for repeated policy violations. Uh, what is the impact of that? First, let's, you know, let's take the, the Yeah One study and get your, your thoughts on it, but also more broadly, this idea of MCNs going public and the future mm -hmm. of the public financial model for it, because... I think we have another one, Broadband TV up in Canada, that's angling to be number four. So curious mm. to hear your thoughts on both of those topics. Yeah, so regarding yeah, one, um, the one thing I'll say, I mean, there's there's good and bad things for us as a company with the yeah, one incident, right? And if you are kind of a savvy investor, the takeaway is when you look at their, I, I looked at their financials a little bit. I don't have the exact numbers in my head, but I remember the YouTube revenue that they're generating because they're, they're also selling advertising for traditional TV, essentially, to the traditional broadcasters in Vietnam. When you look at their top line, I think like, I don't know, 20% or less of their revenue was coming from YouTube directly, right? But when they lost their YouTube license, their stock went down by like 80, 90%, right? So that's validation of how valuable a YouTube enterprise partnership is to any company, including a, a diversified media companies like that, right? Because what the investors are saying is that yeah, some of these some of these ad dollars are you know 
eventually going to go to TV or whatever, but you're able to get those ad dollars because of this, this new media business that you have. So that's, that's number one. Regarding uh, MCMs going public, I don't have the answer to whether going public is the best option for an owner of an MCN. I will say that I think the pendulum in America has swung way too far to the negative in terms of MCNs, meaning I get it. A lot of the MCNs spent a little too much money in the early days. So investors got really skittish, but at the same time, let's not throw away things wholesale. I mean, Style Hall shut down their office and I'm like, but views are still happening on YouTube. What are you going to do with all that inventory? It's still there. Makers inventory is still there or, or the ones that left makers are still out there. And believe me, your kids and your peers are watching YouTube more than traditional TV. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Which is, I think, what kind of happened in the U.S. for now. So to me, in my mind, the MCNs, whether they are a part of a conglomerate, which most of them are, or are standalone still, I think are undervalued. And I think you're going to see valuations start to creep back when investors are are no longer so wounded by what happened, you know, five or six years ago. I just have to jump in with Style Hall. Did you see the news? It was actually oh, yeah. $22 million embezzlement. <laughs> yeah, this because he was playing poker. So. <laughs> That's crazy. It's wild, right? And it is not a good thing for the industry when uh, we're painted yet again with this idea of excess and uh, lack of corporate oversight. So it's tough because we're rooting for the other businesses in the space, right? It's yeah. large enough where the pie is increasing. You want there to be these success stories. It's good when the OOM stock price is up because that's a signal that there's opportunity and, and that other companies can succeed in this industry. It's disheartening to hear, you know, brands get lost, right? Machinima was a classic, iconic brand, mm. folded into full screen, ultimately yeah. shuttered the O&O properties, which, you know, is maybe corporate politics. AT&T's got a lot of other things going on within Warner Media that they're figuring out. But it's yeah. a shame to see that brand kind of go by the wayside. You know, the same thing is now true of Style Hall, and then you've got RTL, MCN, Agreed. and United Screens getting folded into Divimove, uh, which has, you know, been trying to find its footing for, for a while now and figure out their pan-European strategy. Interesting that that broadband was not part of that roll-up, but curious to see what that means for the future of, of the Divimove strategy. And Style Hall, you know, being one of those really early players and a leader in the fashion beauty space, which is a huge vertical, not just on YouTube, but now particularly on Instagram, it's a challenging thing. Yeah. I mean, going back to, you know, Alan kind of touched upon this a little bit earlier, but yeah, I think that's kind of the difference between Asia and in the U.S., right? When you have like Machinima, you know, growing at, at a certain point, then all of a sudden they are competing against Warner Brothers and these, you know, MTV or whatever, right? Whether it's for, you know, talent, like uh, employees, whether it's for ad dollars or whatever, what have you, right? It, it's, it's a little bit different. Whereas in Asia, uh, we've seen instances where I think the media markets are not as developed, except for maybe Japan. Japan is pretty developed, like the U.S., uh, it's not as developed where there are opportunities. You do see, for example, instances of, in Korea, animation studios like Pink Fong and even, one could argue, Iconics, which has the Pororo Penguin franchise. They essentially became globally famous and popular in America because of YouTube. What do you think is the thing that most Americans misunderstand about Asia? Number one, I, I think people don't realize, I, to be honest with you, I didn't even realize just how many people there are over there, right? There's this, if you look online, there's this map of the world and there's a circle around a really small part over Asia. 
and and it's like 80% of the world's population lives in this circle, right? So six out of the 10 countries, top 10 countries in terms of population are in Asia. So China, India, number one and two, uh, US is three, and then Indonesia is number four. Southeast Asia is interesting. Collectively, they have 650 million people. Almost 70% of that population is under the age of 30. That's the other thing is that you have a really young uh, demographic there. That's the difference between Southeast Asia versus China and Japan and Korea. Uh, obviously, China has a huge population. They have 800 million internet users, and 98% of them are mobile. So, you know, that's more than twice the size of the entire U.S. population. So the sheer volume is something that I think a lot of people don't realize. Uh, and that's why we see a lot of opportunity. And one last thing I'd like to point out in places like Southeast Asia and maybe some of the smaller second, third tier cities in, in, in China, you know, they're essentially almost skipping a generation of technology. They may not have TVs at home. They may not have a PC, maybe a laptop, but they all have smartphones. And that's something that you see in many different ways, whether it's how popular Instagram is or, or you know, TikTok, or rather even, they don't even have bank accounts in Southeast, parts of Southeast Asia. So it's actually a digital wallet tied to their phone. And in China now, WeChat, you do everything. It, you have Uber, Airbnb, Expedia, whatever, everything you need, it's all tied to your WeChat, right? So it's really quite different from the United States. And it's actually pushing innovation in very interesting ways. Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of give you two answers. That The first one is what surprised me the most, and then I'll, the second one I'll try to make a generalization about what Americans think. So the first one, the thing I was surprised about was how much people in Asia, so that includes Japan, Indonesia, all the markets that we're in, and China, how much they thirst for other Asian content. So I thought, hey, let's face it, American content is still head and shoulders above anything else in terms of production value and story and all this kind of stuff. Um, Asia is catching up. But I thought, hey, an Indonesian person would rather watch something really, a really cool movie from America. But actually what they're really thirsting for is an Indonesian movie that has that quality. And if they can't get that, then they're happy to watch a Japanese or Korean or Chinese one as well. So I was like, oh, that's, that's really interesting. There is I'm not saying all the countries love each other and it's a love fest, but there is a sense of, hey, I, I, I kind of identify more with someone closer in my neighborhood, right? And that, that's, that was kind of surprising to me. The second thing, uh, what Americans, I think, misunderstand, and this is where we talk about China, but can't understate uh, enough kind of the, the sea change that is occurring in mainland China with respect to attitudes towards the West. So it used to be that, yeah, um, the developed countries, including Korea and Japan, really respect what the West has done for them, right? Um, World War II, post-World War II, um, helped build the economy, lent them a lot of money, and they continue to be grateful for that. But you're starting to see a, a country where they rightly want to have their own kind of set of values as well. And people will sometimes lump sum all those countries together, but you really can't. You really have to separate those out and... and I would say that's one of the big misunderstandings that America has. Amazing insights. I totally echo, uh, Eugene, your point about skipping generations of technology. Kevin Yee and I actually talked about that on the show as well, where he highlights the fact that in Vietnam, they don't have cable television. People went straight to streaming video on demand on their yeah. phone. They just cast it to their big screen TV. 
And uh, I think both of you kind of touched on this idea that, you know, you think about innovation as happening, you know, in the U.S., that Silicon Valley is this, you know, great uh, stronghold of entrepreneurship and discovery, which surely it is. But there are some things that actually hold back the U.S. in many respects. Uh, part of it is infrastructure. Part of it is inertia from existing business models and systems and regulation and everything else, where you've got mobile banking and uh, more interconnectedness between apps that's driving faster rates of e-commerce and other kind of online activity in places like China, Korea, Japan. Yep. What is coming next? If you had to make some predictions about the future of the media and entertainment space, what would they be? So right now, China is kind of a net importer of content, right? So they're generating their own content, no question. Their content industry is probably the greatest burst of creativity that I've ever seen on a scale of that we've never seen, right? For sure. But it's mostly domestically consumed. I think in the future, you will start to see the rest of the world will start to be attracted to Chinese content. Maybe just because I live in Korea, but I think uh, K-pop is definitely, it's still going to continue to grow. I remember when Gangnam Style happened, everyone was like, hey, K-pop had its moment and now it's gone, right? But, you know, K-pop has been around for, for decades and Gangnam Style is not representative of K-pop, right? I think now what you see with Blackpink and BTS I mean, BTS, I read somewhere, I think they, when they sold out the Rose Bowl, it was like the highest grossing concert in Rose Bowl history or something by some metric. Um, I don't think that's a fluke, right? I think K-pop, it's, it's the result of a lot of different things coming together. And I think it's going to be a music genre that's going to continue to be a fixture, not only just in, in Asia, but also worldwide. I think it's going to continue to just be its own thing. And it's such an incredible case study for the government's role in exporting its culture, right? Korea, mm -hmm. Japan to a certain extent, obviously the U.S., there are significant subsidies for film production. There is this interest in the soft power that's exhibited by media and entertainment. Mm -hmm. And so uh, obviously the Korean government is throwing a lot of weight behind its programs to develop future talent. And now that there's these businesses, whether it's CJ or SM Entertainment, a number of these other kind of leading music companies that are growing the careers of these aspiring K-pop artists, I'm with you. I think I'm long on K-pop. It's going to continue to do well throughout Asia, in the U.S., Europe, et cetera. It's a global phenomenon. So we got to do K-pop Vivo. There we, <laughs> we go. Get back with song. Tell yeah, them it's time. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. What does the future hold for Collab Asia? We are now in six different countries. We're in Korea, Japan, Indonesia, Hong Kong, and Philippines, right? And Hong Kong's representative of Greater China. And um, I think in the future, we're, we're still trying to figure out which other markets. For the most part, it really isn't so much dependent on, hey, we just want to jump into Vietnam. It's really, we need to find the right person that kind of fits in with our team and our company culture and, and buys into our vision. And that's not easy to do, right? I mean, hiring people is always, is, is the number one hardest thing to do. We have 122 employees across those six countries. And so... I think we're definitely going to continue to grow. We're trying a lot of different things. And now every market is obviously a little bit different. We're starting to work with more and more music clients, actually, in Asia. So not only with K-pop agencies, but indie musicians in Japan and in Indonesia. Yeah, there's kind of four things that we focus on in all our offices. So gaming is really big for us. Kids animation content, music, as uh, uh, Eugene alluded to a couple times and then like uh, viral videos. So company-wide, that's what we're focusing on. Awesome. Uh, 30 seconds or less, what were your takeaways from VidCon 2019? 
you know, when I first went four or five years ago, I always thought it was a little, the focus was a little off because you had the kids screaming and running after their uh, favorite YouTube stars. And then on the third floor, you had all the industry people who were just swapping business cards. It was almost like two different conferences in one. And now I think they have properly split the two. You know, you, you kind of have the Anaheim Convention Center with the VidCon conference, and now you have uh, a lot of the industry people spending more time in the Hyatt Regency. So I, I welcome that change. My quick perspective was it felt like a very established and stable environment. So they moved it to July, which means most of the kids are out of school. So you kind of went to this. It's kind of like Disneyland, except they're asking their parents not to take them to Disneyland, but to VidCon. So that's kind of cool because maybe that's something that could just persist for, for a long time. So that's kind of the feeling that I got. Me too. I, it's definitely established. It's growing every year. It's great to see the sense of community and you still have fans and creators and industry all come together with more interest from brands, publishers, traditional entertainment. A lot of buzz around TikTok this year mm -hmm. and I think very strong interest in global opportunities in general, but particularly in Asia. And, uh, and, and most of that interest is coming from China. We, we've a taken lot a lot of, well. well, Douyin is a Chinese version of TikTok, right? So we've taken a lot of Douyin creators and, and made them money um, on YouTube. Amazing. If you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? I know you guys listen to the podcast, so you're probably familiar with this question. Obviously, you are just two years into CollabAsia and focused 112% on this. But the idea is, you know, if you were thinking about the new opportunities, the white space in the landscape, putting your entrepreneurial hat on, what would you do? I tell everyone Southeast Asia. Like, um, I have never even been to Southeast Asia before 2018 or 2000. Yeah, early 2018 is when I first went. And it's amazing to me. Uh, I was in Jakarta a month ago and now there's a subway system, right? Six months ago when I was there last, they were still under construction. But yeah, now they now they have a subway system in Jakarta. So I tell everyone I joke around. I tell my wife, maybe she needs to learn Bahasa because we might have to move to Indonesia. But yeah, I mean, I'm just really amazed at the rate of growth and development happening in, in the different parts of Southeast Asia when I visit, but also the people there, they're hungry, they're, they're hustling, and they're actually the young people, we mostly have young people on our staff, they're growing up in this global world where they grow up listening to K-pop, but also like, you know, Ariana Grande and Britney Spears, right? So they are like the, the next generation, Coming from Southeast Asia, they are going to be these true global citizens. So I, I'm, I'm just constantly amazed at what I see in Southeast Asia. I couldn't agree with Eugene more. It's about investing in when you look at you know content worldwide and where it's being consumed and where it's being created. Yeah, you're going to start. You're already starting to kind of see the sh the balance shift towards uh, places like Asia and Southeast Asia is definitely one of them. So yeah, you're going to start to see a lot of cool stuff happening from. Uh, from Southeast Asia, particularly Indonesia. We'll stay tuned for that. In the meantime, where can people find out more about you and more about CollabAsia? Well, our websites are under construction right now, uh, and we are actively working on our social media game. But uh, right now, I think LinkedIn is, has been, I'm amazed that to see how big LinkedIn has become. Before, it was just kind of like, you know, where you look for a job or spy on people, I guess. But uh, yeah, I mean, we're all of our executives are pretty active on LinkedIn and we're actually going to probably use that to share more of the industry related news that involves our company. So for your audience, our LinkedIn pages are probably the most appropriate. Our website's up. Uh, it's collabasia.co, not .com, .co. 
Um, also, Clap Japan, Clap Korea, Clap Indonesia, Clap Philippines.com. So we have all those URLs. Uh, we have different websites for different languages. Um, I'm easy to find. I'm Alan W. Lee. I have that on all the platforms. So Instagram, Twitter, you know, Facebook, A-L-L-E-N-W-L-E-E. Guys, thank you so much for taking time. I know it's been a hectic schedule while you're here in LA, but so fun to get to hear more of the story, more of your perspectives on what's happening in Asia as the next explosive market of growth and the opportunity that you're seeing out there. So thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks, thank you, James. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.